there is an orientation towards the body as being a meaningful conduit of information, right? So there isn't random badness that happens. It's all meaningful. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth. I am your host, Amber Magnolia Hill, and this is episode 57, an interview with Dr. Kelly Brogan. At the beginning here, I'm wanting to define a word for you. This definition has become so central, so foundational to the work that I do. So that's the word radical. Um, radical is a adjective, an adjective that has definitely been applied to Kelly Brogan. It's been applied to me as well. And, you know, we tend to think of it as um, subversive, outside the mainstream, um, revolutionary, maybe. I mean, radical, you know what it means. So the root of this word, I'm looking at etymology online right now, late 14th century, in a medieval philosophical sense from late Latin radicalis, of or having roots, from Latin radix root, meaning going to the origin, essential. And some of you might be familiar with radical as spelled R-A-D-I-C-L-E instead of R-A-D-I-C-A-L. That L-E spelling literally means root, like the root of a plant. So what we tend to call or think of as radical today actually means getting back to the root Um, You know, so eating organic food, having your baby at home without any medication, breastfeeding, perhaps not vaccinating. We think of these as radical. And yeah, they are. They're going back to the root of humanity, to how our species lived for over 99.9% of our history as homo sapiens on the earth. So just keep that in mind. When you hear something called radical, put yourself in the context of the entire history of human experience and not just the one tiny historical moment we're living in right now and what we've been told is normal, what we've been told is good or right. Um, You'll hear this sort of echoed in the part of this conversation where Kelly and I talk about evolutionary mismatch, which is absolutely one of my favorite things to think about and to be aware of in my own life, my own health, and just my body's constant and mind and heart and soul's constant attempts to like calibrate themselves in this world that really is not designed to um, support human health and the way we're doing it right now. Um, You might notice in this conversation that I chose to go wide and somewhat shallow rather than going deep and narrow because there are so many topics I wanted to hit on. And I mean, we could have just gone down the rabbit hole in any one of the things we talked about. Kelly is brilliant as you will hear. Um, And so, you know, at, at the end of each time she was speaking and I was like, okay, do I go deeper here or do I move on to the next question? And I chose to move on just to give you a tiny glimpse of the things that Kelly writes, shares, Um, and teaches about so you can kind of you know hook into what you're most interested in and then find it in her books or on her website anywhere there's 
she has so much information out. Um, I've recorded a separate outro for this episode because I wanted to flesh out some of the ideas we talked about that we didn't really have time to. In that outro, I talk about current censorship of, quote, alternative, again, just like ancient human um, practices, health, life ways that's currently happening by social media and Google. And then I talk about just some of my favorite vaccine information resources, and those are all linked to in the show notes. So it's going to be a long show note link episode. Um, the giveaway for, for Patreon visitors, you don't even have to actually be a patron of the podcast to enter the giveaways that I do on Patreon at patreon.com slash medicine stories, um, is, is Kelly's new book, one copy of Kelly's new book, Own Yourself, The Surprising Path Beyond Depression, Anxiety, and Fatigue to Reclaiming Your Authenticity, Vitality, and Freedom. Um, I'm, I, I read the book in preparation for this episode. I'm really happy to have it on my shelf because there's a lot of things that I'm going to go back and refer to over time. Um, so that giveaway will be found there, patreon.com slash medicine stories, and I will close it down on October 29th. You can learn more at the book, of course, at Kelly's website, kellybroganmd.com. I believe it is link in the show notes, of course. Uh, okay. Kelly Brogan MD is a holistic health psychiatrist, author of the New York Times bestselling book, A Mind of Your Own. Own Yourself, the children's book, those are two different books, children's book, A Time for Rain, and co-editor of the landmark textbook, Integrative Therapies for Depression. She completed her psychiatric training and fellowship at NYU Medical Center after graduating from Cornell University Medical College and has a BS from MIT in Systems Neuroscience. She is board certified in psychiatry, psychosomatic medicine, and integrative holistic medicine, and is specialized in a root cause resolution approach to psychiatric syndromes and symptoms. She is a certified KRI Kundalini yoga teacher and a mother of two. Um, If you like what you hear, I recommend listening to Kelly on other podcasts because I just, obviously you like podcasts and, um, you know, just the podcast interview format leaves so much room for people to express themselves in ways they may not in their books or in their Instagram posts. And I have just really benefited from listening to Kelly on other people's podcasts. It was an honor to get to book her for my podcast and I am very excited to share it with you. So let's go ahead and get into it. Okay, welcome to Medicine Stories, Dr. Brogan. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. And so I thought we could begin, um, for the people who are completely unfamiliar with you, you've really gone into this in your books and other podcasts, but please just give us a brief overview of your evolution as a psychiatrist, how your understanding of the body and mind changed over time, and how your um, treatment protocols changed along with it. Mm. Yeah, so I think it's an important bit of context that I have inhabited both sides of the aisle with some extremity, right? So I was a very conventionally oriented, like, you know, dyed in the wool, uh, 
MD, uh, specifically trained as a psychiatrist, specifically trained in prescribing to pregnant and breastfeeding women. So that's how much I believed in the legitimacy of pill-based management of human suffering and struggling. And so it really required what I think it requires of most um, MDs who, who sort of go rogue. Uh, it required a lived experience of dissonance, right? So I had to go through something that didn't fit in with the understanding of health and disease that I had built up to and pledged my allegiance to up until that point. And that really arose in the form of my first um, diagnosis. So postpartum, my own first pregnancy, I was diagnosed with something called Hashimoto's thyroiditis and an autoimmune condition. I had never, I had n honestly never really paid attention to my body up until that point in my life because I, um, I never gained weight easily. So I treated myself like, you know, a processed food trash receptacle basically and never exercised. I used all sorts of toxic products and dyed my hair black and took birth control for 12 years and really burned the candle at both ends. I mean, I remember there was one point I went to a cardiologist as a, as a resident in my training and I went there because I had su such racing heart that it was like really uncomfortable. And I got a whole cardiac workup, like wore a Holter monitor, all this stuff. And nobody ever asked me like, by the way, are you drinking more than one or two cups of coffee a day, like maybe six cups of coffee a day, which was more accurate. And so this is how kind of unconscious of any, re any relevance of, of lifestyle choices to health that I was. Um, but I also knew that I didn't want to take a prescription pill for the rest of my life. Just wasn't interested. Maybe I thought I wouldn't be able to be a compliant patient or I would forget or it would become annoying over time. But I also knew that the women I had treated who were diagnosed with my same diagnosis, they never really felt well again once they were diagnosed and treated in this way. And so I wasn't so interested in that model. I went to see a naturopath, which was very unlike me at that point. Uh, but I knew that it was the only escape hatch because I knew what the model I was trained in had to offer was a very low, you know, glass ceiling. And I saw in black and white, you know, my antibodies come from the high 2000s and my TSH, you know, normalized. And, you know, you would have thought that I would have been so excited with like hearts and rainbows coming out of my head. But instead, I had like steam coming out of my ears. I was so enraged. And, you know, this was many years, 10 almost 10 years into really indentured servitude. I mean, it was like blood, sweat, and tears, $200,000 of debt. I gave a decade of my life to this training and it felt like for what? So I could learn a pile of lies or like a little sliver of the scientific truth about what it is to have a human body and uh, exist in, in a state of health or disease. You know, I just felt um, lionized. So I went back to the books. I spent several years um, learning about the science that I had never really, I'd never known to search for because I knew how to look for science. I knew how to read papers. Um, I was very comfortable with that. And so I went to PubMed. I mean, I don't know how many thousands of hours I spent um, researching all the sacred cows. So, you know, everything from cholesterol medications to birth control to antibiotics you know, over-the-counter painkillers and acid blockers, vaccines. I researched psychotropic medications, of course, because that was my uh, specialty. And what I found was the same theme over and over and over again, 
was uh, that the the essential butchering of informed consent, or maybe the impossibility of it, um, because we were overpromising the potential benefits. We were underplaying, um, if not totally ignorant of the adverse effects, and there was no exploration of the evidence-based uh, true alternative options. Um, and so it was from this spirit that I wrote A Mind of Your Own, which was my first book. It was, um, you know, I was pretty, I was really fueled with a lot of anger. And I felt like, oh, well, this is a science war and I'm going to win because I have the science from my training and now I have a whole nother body of science. So I have more science. And I know um, that people just are, once they get exposed to this information, that there's not going to ever be um, a need to take medication again. And of course, I learned that that's not how it works, <laughs> that this isn't an information war, that this is a, um, this is a, about competitive paradigms, that this is about what belief system, you know, serves your soul. Like, what do you really, really believe deep down? Do you believe that, you know, as Alan Watts would say, we are flesh robots on a dead rock spinning in the middle of nowhere, subjected to the random forces of like bad luck, bad genes and bad timing, you know, you're just going to do your best to, to protect yourself and survive and maybe get like an A plus on your life experience. Or do you believe that there is, you know, emergent um, beauty, you know, that there is inherent design and that the body has a, a deep wisdom, is a conduit, you know, between the soul and our conscious awareness that serves us, that challenges and adversity are here to grow and evolve, um, you know, our, our beingness to a point of, of lived experience of authenticity and love, you know, there is this other story emerging, but it's very complex. It embraces complexity. In fact, it's not just about like the A to B, you know, one gene to one pill, you know, kind of model. Um, but I think it feels true to a lot of us, even without knowing the science, just conceptually. And so over the years of many a dark night of the soul, since um, a mind of your own, I, I came to focus on really nurturing, supporting, um, and creating a safe incubator for those who choose that belief system and celebrating the, you know, the, the champions of that model. You know, these p individuals who have walked away from their chronic disease labels, walked away from medications, and found a version of themselves that is no longer pretending to have it together, right? But instead embraces all of the ways in which they're still learning how to be human. Um, all of those dark parts that they thought they had to pretend weren't there. And uh, and so it's it's with a deep pleasure and and true privilege that you know, I present this book, Own Yourself, as being a compendium of what I've had to learn myself about navigating um, the awakening process, and then also in celebration of those individuals who have shown me that this reality is, is ready to be born. I think that complexity piece is so, is so important with these two opposing paradigms that you're speaking of. And you know, unfortunately, we've bred generations of Americans, especially who don't like complexity and don't want to get into the weeds and really have to think critically about, especially as we're speaking about the dominant medical paradigm. 
and what has been handed to us as um, what health is, you yes. know, which, what healing is, which is as you write so much about just the management of symptoms, not actually true healing in this medical paradigm. Um, so you got, you had this awakening, this belief system, paradigm overturning. And since then, you have not written a single prescription in your psychiatry practice. This is how deeply you believe what you are, what you're sharing about. It's, that's my temperament. And, and trust me, it's no small part of my shadow that I am very absolutist. You know, like when I am committed to something, I'm all in. Um, so and that perhaps has served in a way uh, in my practice because in 2010, when I learned about the, really it was the risks, even more than the overreporting of efficacy, because that's a big issue in psychiatry, but it was really the risks, chiefly the risk of, uh, the potential risk that we are not screening for. In fact, I don't think there's a clinician on the planet screening for this, of um, induced impulsive violence. So whether this is suicide or homicide, including even mass shootings, so this is a this is a civil liberties issue, you know, um, or whether it was the is the um, potential for chemically induced dependency. So I found uh, shortly after putting down my prescription pad and offering patients the opportunity to come off of medications. Um, you know, I, I came to the belief I still hold, which is that these are the most habit forming chemicals on the planet for reasons we really don't understand. Um, but I just know that there, you know, there aren't, uh, there is never a reason to come by a thousandth of a milliliter or a thousandth of a milligram down on crack cocaine or alcohol or cigarettes or Oxycontin. And you ask any of the hundreds of thousands of individuals who have been really put in a position to self-manage their taper. Uh, because there aren't educated or trained physicians out there to help them, that you know that's what's what's necessary. So it really was because of the the known adverse effects, um, not to mention the potential to induce further psychiatric labels, like the one in twenty three people who are diagnosed with bipolar disorder after they start an antidepressant prescription and told, oh, that was your latent mental illness, another label in addition to your first. But in fact, the, the science tells a different story that we are inducing epidemics um, in this way and certainly in the pediatric population. So I ethically, you know, I couldn't sleep at night um, if I found any reason to violate that knowledge in service of a quick fix outcome in my patients. So to this day, I have not started somebody on a medication. I've dedicated my practice to tapering. And I think because of that commitment on my part, um, I've been able to see really what it looks like to come off these meds. And I have, I don't may, maybe more experience than anyone. I don't know. Um, certainly who's public about it. I'm sure there are some quiet folks doing this. Um, you know, but and, you know, so I draw from that experience to, to tell others that there, there, there is an order of operations when you're ready to transition to that stage of your um, personal expression. You know, when you're ready to walk away from labels and meds, it's very complex, not only physiologically, uh, but also psycho-spiritually. Like what it is, if you've been a patient identified with your illness for, what, decades, what is it to not have an a label anymore, you know? So these individuals that I've had the privilege of working with, they can talk about how, um, how much more complicated that is than we would imagine. Um, and there are many turns in that spiral where 
you know, the average practitioner or patient would be tempted to return to medication because it can get very dark. Um, and only because of my commitment can I see and say, you know, that suicidality transforms. I know that it does uh, because I have seen it happen hundreds of times. And if you're not committed at that level, you might never see the natural course of these torrents of emotion, of what it is to shed the illusory um, layers of your identity, right? So it's almost like where these, these people, these intrepid, courageous people are showing us what it is to initiate to ourselves, to, to engage this cultural ritual that has been all but lost um, in, in our American consciousness. This discussion of labels and identities um, reminds me of just this, this brilliant phrase that you write that diagnoses are modern day hexes. Mm. And so I want to ask you, how, how do you conceptualize the role of meaning in our illness narratives and in our healing narratives? Like what, what is the importance of meaning making in this process of healing? Yeah. So I think it's an unintended consequence of the allopathic medical paradigm that there is no room for the individual, right? Because it, it, we so longed to reduce it, to feel in control and mastery of the body, um, to have this system at scale that we sort of in many ways have forsaken the individual, right? So the, the experience that you have as a person, it's really not relevant to your ICD-10 code and the prescriptions you're going to fill at CVS, right? And, and what happens particularly in psychiatry is there's a kind of dehumanization that's particularly powerful, right? Because if you have like Julie who's running around naked and hasn't slept in eight days and, you know, is... Um, is making threatening remarks. Um, it's very easy to just say, Oh, that's Julie. She's bipolar. Right. But what happens when we do that? What happens is we no longer are interested in Julie. We think we figured her out, right? She's bipolar. So we don't want to know why is this happening? Right. For Julie, what does this represent for her? Could it be a thyroid imbalance, you know, could it be a micronutrient deficiency? Could it be, you know, gluten antigenicity? Could it be a medication side effect like an antibiotic? You know, could it be a spiritual emergence? We have no idea and we're not interested because we've already labeled her and we already have her channeled into her management and self-suppression practices, also known as being a compliant patient. So it's really um, in the asking of this audacious question, why? that we have to exit the paradigm because it doesn't have room for that question. It's not interested in that question, right? So it's not that it says that question doesn't matter. It's actually just not even a part of the dialectic. It's not a part of um, that, uh, that paradigm's consciousness. So when you want to ask the question why, you have to leave the tent. You have to go find a new tent. And in this, in this new tent, there's, there's a lot of emergent... Um, sort of uh, importance around what is happening to you for you. And I think that, you know, I've said that suffering ends where meaning begins. And, and I found that to be true because if you can make sense out of what is happening in your life experience, no longer are you in this sort of flailing around like helpless dependent position that, by the way, has a neurobiologic signature of fight or flight 
right? So it's impossible to heal in that setting. You can only manage, right? Like you can only tread water. But when you shift into an understanding of this is all going to make sense, it may not at this, this moment, but I trust that there is a, a, a design here. There's a message for me. There's an invitation. And that as I move through it one step at a time, I'm going to get to a place where I've actually grown bigger and can better understand who I am, better hold um, the parts of myself that I, I thought I could just lob off. And, um, you know, this is even in the medical literature. There's, I reference, um, you know, some, some research looking into the meaning uh, and narrative of personal, personalized medicine. And I found even for my own experience with Hashimoto's, which, you know, you could say, oh, coincidentally, it uh, emerged in my life and in my body at a time where I was at a fork in the road. Um, and I could have chosen to just suppress the symptoms and manage them with a lifelong prescription, particularly if I was, you know, scared into doing that um, or, or, you know, invited to be a responsible patient. Um, or I could choose the other fork in the road, which is to say there's something in this for me. There's a message here. And maybe even to invoke some of the yogic traditions that look at, you know, the fifth chakra as being the, the center for personal expression, for your statement to the world. And lo and behold, I followed the moonlit pebbles down that path and I every day discover more and more about who I actually am. And that diagnosis was my invitation to begin to walk this path. So there, there was tremendous um, poetry embedded in there, tremendous meaning at a moment in my life where um, I look back and I, I almost feel pathos for, for the version of me that might have thought that's all she was. Let's talk about one of the underlying um, things happening with so many people's mental and physical health today, and that's this idea of evolutionary mismatch. Can you tell mm -hmm. us about that? Yeah. So, you know, with the birth of epigenetics um, to explain the limitations of the uh, genomic model of, of health and, and disease, which is, was really decimated by the completion of the sequencing of the human genome when we found essentially we're as complex when it comes to protein coding genes as an earthworm if not less. And so there must be more going on here biologically. And epigenetics has helped us to interact um, with our own complexity and particularly around the role of exposures, um, environmental, psychological, and otherwise in genetic expression. Um, so that is how we've been able to capture the complexity, but also we're learning about it, you know, all day, every day. So, you know, I remember when I first encountered the term evolutionary mismatch, which essentially is a research-based term that refers to the ways in which our lived um, experience does not complement our DNA, right? So that we've evolved over several million years to expect certain biorhythms, certain nutritional exposures, um, you know, certain interpersonal dynamics. And when those are not fulfilled, that the body expresses inflammatory um, signaling and invites recalibration. But I remember thinking, well, but with epigenetics, we can evolve within one lifetime, right? So why are we evolving to accommodate, um, you know, what's present in the environment, whether it's 
perchlorate from our dry cleaner or, you know, 72 vaccines or, you know, the, the chronic stress of the daily grind, right? Or EMFs from our cell phone or 5G networks. Why are we evolving to accommodate that if we can evolve? Because now we know um, that we have tremendous capacity to change our gene expression in practically real time. So what I found is that you know, it's again, it's only in this other tent that this kind of assertion even makes any sense. Um, but what I found is that in my belief system, we are not designed to or meant to evolve because there is a certain harmony. There is a certain balance with this planet, you know, with our, our ecosystem, with each other that is right and proper and harmonious, right? And and so we will be forever invited back towards that balance um, that is is primary uh, to a fulfilling human experience and also to the experience of, of unconditional love, which I believe to be the point of our incarnation, to get closer and closer to that as we, you know, um, are, are born into conditionality. And so I... Um, I really was moved by a book called The Continuum Concept by Jane Leadloff that um, helps us to understand this calling back. Um, she calls it the continuum, which is, you know, again, this set of circumstances, many of which are, are relational. Um, and, it, and if we stray too far from them, we suffer. We suffer. And we suffer physically, we suffer emotionally, psychologically, and, and spiritually. Um, and that suffering is not random, and it's not itself the problem. The, the challenge is that we, we must learn to respond to the, to the call, to the invitation back to that match. Um, I'm going to echo that book, The Continuum Concept, for anyone listening who has young children or is pregnant. Yes. Absolutely. It was a painful one to read when my kids were like <laughs> six and eight, you know, mm -hmm. it's one I certainly wish I had been exposed to earlier in my um, experience as a parent. Yeah, I was lucky to read it when my now 13 year old was a baby. That's beautiful. Uh, so speaking of uh, precision medicine, individual medicine, um, <laughs> and everything that we've talked about so far, you have this really brilliant take on vaccines, which as someone in in the informed consent vaccine education movement, like out loud about it, this isn't something I see very often. You know, I spend hours every week taking in vaccine information, and this is something I really wish more people would be looking at. You write, predicated on 200-year-old science, developed conceptually long before our discovery of the double helix, the microbiome, or the concept of epigenetics, without a single true placebo-controlled study under its belt vaccination science is fortifying itself against meaningful examination or evolution. So we'll get into that fortification, but can you just kind of unpack this before the discovery of the double helix, the microbiome, or the concept of epigenetics as it relates to vaccines? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so, I, I don't have to tell you this, I'm sure, but it's like if we zoom out a little bit, there's so much important um, inquiry you know, relevant to the discussion of vaccines, it's kind of hard to know where to begin. Because you it's know, so I, complex. Yeah, and it, there's just so much there. You know, there's so much inquiry that hasn't been given um, airtime. And, you know, if I, as a doctor, were to ask another prescribing physician, you know, or clinician, do you think there is a single pharmaceutical product on the planet 
that should be given to every single human being without exception in the same exact dosage. 72 times. <laughs> right, let alone 72 times. And of course the answer, intuitively, let alone, you know, pause for some research, intuitively the answer would be no. So then, so then begins the, the exploration of the, you know, the informed consent paradigm, right? So what are the understood risks? What are the understood benefits? And is there another way to achieve the stated outcome? Uh, you know, <laughs> according to the published literature. And, you know, I summarized um, my scientific perspective on this because like you, I, you know, I've probably clocked 10,000 hours on this subject. And honestly, it started when I was pregnant. So this was before I was um, diagnosed with Hashimoto's and my journey began. I was pregnant and I was, remember, prescribing to other pregnant women psychotropic drugs, which I was one of the first 300 in the world to do that professionally as an, you know, a quote unquote expert. And so I was very vigilant around the literature in support of my prescribing practices. I had two women, and this was in the swine flu season, 2008, 2009, who had second trimester stillbirths, which any mother, any human, I should say, can imagine, you know, the the, the horror of that. I mean, that's like, um, talk about an inv invitation to evolve your consciousness. Um, that's pretty extraordinary, right? And because I had been prescribing to these women, I wanted to know what happened. So in, you know, in a kind of M&M, they call it like morbidity, mortality, forensic review, um, I understood that both of them received flu shots from a, a pharmacy. And now, of course, we have um, exposed data that supports the lethality to the fetus of the flu shot in pregnancy, uh, let alone you know, the perturbance to the, the mother's um, immuno-inflammatory response, and not to mention the package insert that very clearly states that this has never been studied um, for reproductive safety or teratogenicity, never mind that. But that really raised a flag for me because I defensively, defensive of my own prescribing uh, practices, I said, well, hold on a minute. You know, how did they receive this pharmaceutical without any sit down informed consent conversation with a, an MD? And here I am spending hours meeting with their husband and all this stuff um, to prescribe them Zoloft or Prozac or whatever it might be. So I began to do my own research. And of course, as a pregnant woman, I had to make a decision about the Hep B vaccine um, myself. And I had already begun to research obstetrics myself, again, because I was, I'm working on this still, but I was a very controlling person. And I thought, well, I know better. I'm not going to take my OB's word for it. I can do the research myself. So I looked into uh, C-section and episiotomy and fetal monitoring and ultrasound and the HEPI vaccine because I knew each of the questions that I was going to be asked. I wanted to know the research and I wanted to make my own decision in advance. Remember, this is not because I was some like earth mama, you know, hippie. I actually had a natural birth, not because I knew anything about feminine empowerment or, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, the proper alignment of, of the mother-infant dyad through the birth experience, but because of the scientific literature, right? So there's a very black and white concrete layer to, that supports these evolutionary choices. And so I did the same research on the Hep B vaccine, and that was the beginning of the rabbit hole that I fell down, um, understanding that, you know, listen, when you lift um, 
the checks and balances of market forces, which has happened since 1986, and you allow the pharmaceutical industry to run wild without incentive, incentivizing the, the study of safety um, or admission of, of harm, the true accountability of our capitalistic system that you know, can serve in, in, um, in a marketplace, then it's really up to us to do our own research as consumers. We become identified as consumers. Uh, and so what I found is that, you know, the, the science itself breaks down um, the efficacy and, and safety of this intervention, but that it's not really about science, is it? Right, because we've been we've been having those science wars, you and me, and and dozens of others, for many years now, and the science wars um, are probably not going to get us where we need to go because I think this is a bigger issue. I think that the meta relevance of what is happening in our nation right now must be acknowledged if we're going to um, really get down to what this is truly about. And I think, my humble opinion, is that the concept of germ theory, uh, as represented by, you know, the dominant medical orthodoxy, is like, it's the, the final expression of the control-based, power-oriented um, approach to reality, right? Because what does it say? It says these little invisible, you know, um, dangerous agents are going to invade you. They're going to take over and they're going to kill you, right? So it's the projection of our darkness. It's the projection of our shadow onto these little invisible <laughs> demons, these microbes, right? That is this, the first most important setup of warfare. And that warfare is occurring on every level of our, our lived societal experience, right? So the bad guys, the terrorists, all diseases. I mean, look at even the names of our medications, antihypertensives, antibiotics, uh, you know, antidepressants. We are fighting, 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 fighting. And if we think that it just requires more technology and more science and more vaccines and more meds, you know, and more prisons and... To, to, to get to the to that place of safety that we so long for and by the way are entitled to, like it's important to recognize how childish that is at this point. The science aside, right? And for me, it's also very important to recognize that when our fear is captured, particularly as mothers, that we risk sacrificing our most important human liberty which is bodily sovereignty. And when we allow ourselves to be penetrated in service of the collective, let alone in service of our own uh, fear mitigation, that is an extremely, extremely slippery slope to totalitarianism and fascism. And that, let's, let's not be mistaken that that is what a vaccine represents. It is a penetration of the body. And that's why so many people call it medical rape when it is uh, administered without proper informed consent, let alone consent at all. So to my mind, these are the issues, you know, uh, at hand. And it, it takes um, the success of a dystopian portrait like Handmaid's Tale, you know, um, and its popularity 
I think for people to really feel viscerally like what it would be like to live in that kind of a society where bodily sovereignty is no longer recognized as a, as a civil liberty, but know that this issue is about that, I think. Um, and that we can fight about the science all day long, but in the end, this is about, you know, do you believe that control and force are the answer in the end? Because if you fundamentally in your heart know there's a better way, then the science will pave that path, right? Because in my orientation scientifically, I've discovered that we don't know how to engineer complex systems. We don't know how to engineer biodynamic soil or old growth forests. We don't know how to engineer an immune system, period. We do not know how. So what can we do instead? We can create the conditions for the complexity to unfold organically. And that is, you know, again, I'm very outcomes oriented person. I mean, that's why I have a, a, a team of clinical volunteers um, dedicated to writing up these, you know, case histories where, where individuals have defied their diagnoses and their, um, you know, their lifetime of medications. And what happens in those cases is a, is a complexity on the order that could never have been engineered by the allopathic medical system. Instead, what happened is this, the conditions were created for them to heal themselves. And that's why the outcomes that are available through this approach are simply not available through the conventional paradigm. So you must leave it in order to access that, but you don't need anything outside of yourself. The, the, the freeing up of fear around embodiment, um, around symptoms is so profound because these individuals have had a lived experience, um, right? Like in my community, um, you know, down here in, in Florida and certainly in my, in my family, we're not afraid of getting sick. That's, that's not a thing, literally not a thing. And I mean, in general, cancer, infection, you name it. It's not a fear like the social currency that, that is running rampant in, in American society. And that the reason that this is no longer a fear is because there is um, an orientation towards the body as being a meaningful conduit of information, right? So there isn't random badness that happens. It's all meaningful. And again, this is not a belief system for everyone, but it is my sincere hope that we can retain the right to exercise um, the beliefs that are most resonant with our consciousness. Uh, we only have a few minutes left, or I would have so much more to say and so many more questions. On passionate subjects, I tell you. No, I'm with you, and I'm so grateful for it. There's so much more to say. Um, but I, I really want to talk about something I haven't seen you, heard you talk about so much on podcasts, but I've always gotten little bits and threads from you, which is, um, so, you know, you're talking about this feeling of safety, coming home to ourselves, and just the vital intelligence of, of our bodies, of our ancestral human bodies. And I've heard you speak about uh, your own Italian ancestors and the sojourns that you have made to Italy and how it felt like that homecoming to you. So before we go, I would just love to hear, you know, are you thinking of the work you're doing and all these things we're talking about, like in ancestral terms? Mm. Thank you for asking that. You're right. I, I almost never get asked this question and it's probably something I feel most intimately connected to in terms of the the yield, I guess, um, to be a little bit, <laughs> you know, metric about it, of my my personal work, right? My spiritual 
efforting and and that efforting has been mostly um, around growing my capacity to understand myself as not who I thought I was. And to see this in the context of my matrilineal line um, has made clear to me that part of part of what I'm here to do, because I think some of us, especially as women, we have this, this sense like, hmm, I have an opportunity to break a cycle, right? Like I have an opportunity in my lifetime to do things differently than perhaps they've been done for generations and generations. And I inherited a whole bunch of shit, <laughs> you know, and, and programming and fear and trauma. And maybe I am the alchemist of my bloodline. You know, maybe I am the one who's going to transform that pain into power. And trust me, there have been many moments where I've been on my knees and, and literally screamed to the universe, like, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I can't do it. It's too, it's too big for me. So this is not like a, you know, some poetic turn of phrase. This is real in the mud, like, like ripping your hair out kind of scary work. Um, and almost always it has to do with the way in which trauma lives in the body um, and is passed down from mother to mother to mother. And of course, you know, we have epigenetic um, evidence to support that, but it's, it's really also, um, I think, just an intuitive spiritual concept that we are, we are working with uh, the unfinished business of our ancestors. And, you know, I think back on my mother line and, you know, my great-grandmother, um, yes, great-grandmother killed herself. My grandmother uh, immigrated um, from Italy and was, you know, in war-torn World War II. Um, she had both of her babies cut out of her through a transverse C-section under general anesthesia. And she was really arrested in this very childlike um, state, you know, where she, you know, was left by her partner shortly thereafter, never had a partner, you know, I don't think had a sensual experience in decades and decades of her adult life. Um, she worked, you know, for minimum wage, commuted into New York City from the boroughs and, um, and wrapped presents, you know, uh, for, for 30 years. And she, and she knew love very deeply, um, but she was not given the opportunity to be in her body. She was still on some level in the survival mode. And, you know, that was handed down to my mom where we never had a conversation about sex. We, she never talked to me about my menstrual cycle um, or what it is to have this female body. And she was very much um, enculturated around patriarchal thinking in service of trying to help and support me, right? And then the, the mantra was always like, you need to be able to support yourself. And I, you know, I took that to heart and I set out and with my mercenary programs to be totally independent and never ask for help and, and exercise a level of self-sufficiency that ultimately kept me disconnected from even those around me who, who loved me. And so my healing, and I don't think this is particularly unique, has been first on the body level like first to, to understand what it is to be in this body, relate to it without fear, understand that it is, um, that it is a gift of sensuality and a vehicle for pleasure and to, to begin to 
um, inhabit it. That's when dance became um, one of the most important commitments, you know, I have in my day-to-day life, for example. Um, And then also looking at these patterns, psychological patterns that I inherited that maybe I'm going to choose differently around, right? And, And maybe I'm not going to focus on control as being the most important um, aspect of my life, success, achievement as being the most important elements. Because trust me, you know, with all my credentials and all my expensive degrees, I never felt my, even my books, I've never felt um, pride. And anyone who runs these programs knows that that's, it's a black hole. It's a hungry ghost that it is never sated, right? It's not the way. To fulfillment, and instead, you know, when I have felt pride, is particularly in my mothering, um, particularly in those moments where I have been able to grow my capacity to hold difficult emotions and to tend to myself and soothe myself, so that my daughters can actually, for once, be who the hell they are, right, and not have to live in service of pleasing me. And it sounds easy, but you know, any mother would attest that it's, it's probably the hardest work. And that to me is really the legacy transformation that I am working into is how can I liberate these girls um, to understanding how to report only to them, <laughs> right? Only to themselves and to, to really end that paradigm of outer um, externalized authority and outer focus and this endless effort to curate oneself um, to recruit love and, and acceptance. There is a, isn't another way um, to be and the vulnerability um, that has to attend that, it has to be practiced and the conditions have to be set for it to be safe enough to explore that. And that is my, you know, that's my dedication um, to my children and my ongoing uh, kind of work in progress. Yeah. Amen. Thanks, Kelly. Um, Please tell people where they can find you, your books, your online programs and anything else. Yeah. So um, over at kellybroganmd.com and we are, you know, really kind of a hub for offerings um, are, you know, really in service of this, this journey of self-reclamation and um, the community that I have found is a very important component of, um, of this kind of healing that is really best done in ways outside of, of the doctor's office. So many amazing resources on your website. You can just really spend a lot of time going deep and having your, your mind opened and your heart soothed. So thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, really just endlessly inspired by not only your work and your outlook and the way that you filter information and put it out there, but your bravery and your courage in really walking, you know, a, a path that is makes you an easy target. And um, just, yeah, I'm inspired and I, your, your courage is contagious. So thank you. Mm, thank you. It's, it's this kind of, you know, support that reminds me that I'm not crazy and <laughs> allows me to, uh, you know, sort of put one foot in front of the next. So thank you. Okay, so pretty dense, right? Just chock full of information, um, but so, so awesomely dense. Like this shit is what I live for, (laughs) is what I do this podcast for, to provide um, a plethora of information and resources for folks so that you can go deeper into what interests you and what calls to you. And I know it's a lot and it can seem overwhelming, but... 
clearly, I think it's very, very important information and really important conversations to be having all of this, the medical paradigm, mental health, and vaccines. So let's talk about that conversation. Uh, Let's talk about censorship. So in the interview, I said to Kelly when I read her quote back to her about epigenetics and the microbiome and DNA and how we aren't taking our discoveries of those um, scientific, medical, fascinating facts about our bodies into account when we talk about vaccination these days. And at the end of that quote, she said um, that the vaccine industry is fortifying itself against meaningful examination or evolution. And they said we'd get into it, but then we did not have time. So what she meant by that, probably among other things, but one of these things is censorship. Massive censorship happening on the national level around this conversation, which you guys, I mean, really think about it. Think about it. What other topic are we just not even allowed to discuss? And what does it mean when our government is trying so hard to shut down just a conversation, just simple questions that people are asking? Um, I have been really, really thinking hard lately about the collective cognitive dissonance wherein we live in a society where the NVICP, the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, has awarded $4,182,078,000 $646 to victims of vaccine injury and death. And in this same society where that is true, and I have the link in the show notes here from hrsa.gov, Health Resources and Services Administration branch of the government, in the same society where over $4 billion has been paid out for vaccine injury and death, the hashtag vaccine injury has been censored on Facebook and Instagram. Stories that families and individuals are telling about their injury or death after vaccination is being censored while the government pays out $4 billion for those very injuries. Just hold those two thoughts in your mind at the same time allow the little brain explosions to happen and really think about what it means when our society wants to censor something that is verifiably true and overwhelmingly true avalanche of injuries and deaths. So when someone is trying to censor a conversation, that is the very conversation we need to be having. When the powers that be who are making dollars, the pharmaceutical industry, is trying to censor information, that is the very information you need to know. So another um, front line on the censorship attack machine that has been unleashed by pharma and the government that it has bought is 
what has been happening with Google and Google searches. So back in June, Kelly sent out a newsletter and she wrote, since June 3rd, we have witnessed an unprecedented decline in searchability through Google. Prior to that, kellybroganmd.com was averaging 225,000 impressions per month. And now we have nearly flatlined because our content is not findable without the use of the phrase kellybroganmd.com in the search. So this has happened to other, quote, alternative natural health websites like Dr. Mercola's website and Green Med Info that literally going from that number, 225,000 or even more impressions a month to almost zero, almost overnight just because Google changed the algorithm so that people can no longer find information that runs counter to the pharmaceutical company's party lines that they are um, spewing (laughs) all over the the very information-hungry citizens of this country who, who aren't getting the information that they want or that they need because of this massive censorship um, extravaganza that's going on. And so if you don't know, if you have not tried to search on Facebook for anything vaccine-related, um, an upcoming guest on this podcast is going to be Ashley Everly. She is the creator of The Vaccine Guide, which you can find at vaccine.guide. Just today, I was trying to find Vaccine Guide on Facebook, which is a page that I not only uh, like, but follow. Okay, I type in vaccine guide. Oh, the first thing that comes up, looking for vaccine info? When it comes to health, everyone wants reliable, up-to-date information. The Centers for Disease Control, CDC, has information that can help answer your questions. Go to cdc.gov. So I scroll down, 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 down. No vaccine guide is coming up. I follow this page. Like, this should be here. The same thing happens, you guys, when I go to look for my local um, vaccine awareness group. And there's, like, a ton of California vaccine awareness groups that I'm part of. And this happens when I go to look for any of them. So this is what you need to do if you're following any vaccine information pages on Facebook or in any groups. Um, And I'm going to give you some of my favorite pages that I follow in a minute here. But you have to actually click on pages after you type it in, after you press return and it searches, and then it's you're just showing you all the CDC bullshit. The CDC is a vaccine company, y'all. Over 50% of their income comes from vaccines and patents they have on va- on vaccines. Sorry, my uh what garage band is being glitchy again, so I'll do my best here. Um okay, so what happens after you after you press return and all that bullshit comes up is you have to go across the top here where it says all posts, people, photos, videos, marketplace, pages, and press pages. Or if you're looking for a group, press groups. And so what happens when I do that vaccine guide is still not at the top, like any other thing you search within Facebook would be. Instead, I've got CDC, Gates Foundation, World Health Organization, American Cancer Society, American Medical Association, UNICEF, National Institutes of Health, CHI Health, Keck Medicine of USC, CDC Global. Oh, and there's Vaccine Guide. So a bunch of other um, pharma bot institutions get listed before the thing that I'm specifically looking for 
when I look on Facebook. And then what happens when it does take me to vaccine guides page? Same thing. This page posts about vaccines. When it comes to health, everyone wants reliable, up-to-date information. Da-da-da. Go to cdc.gov. So this is terrifying. This should terrify you no matter how you feel about vaccines and vaccine mandates, which, I mean, if you are not paying attention to what's happening with vaccine mandates right now, or maybe you know they took away religious exemptions in New York this year, maybe you know they just took away medical exemptions in California unless the child has basically anaphylactic shock, goes into a coma, or um, has encephalopathy. So I have been fighting that bill here in California, SB 276, since the springtime. I've been super, super involved in in the fight. And my um, my knowledge and my ability to research real science on vaccines has grown so much in this time. I'm so bummed that Gavin Newsom signed the bill into law, but I'm so grateful for everything I've learned, the people and resources that I found along the way, and for the fact that I am not fucking afraid to talk about this anymore. If you listen to episode 30 of this podcast, the first one, and thus far the only one where vaccines have been discussed, I'm very like trepidatious and, oh, you know, I just, I just don't feel like that anymore. Like this is the truth. There's, hundreds of thousands of studies out there, um, according to something I just read from Kelly, over 225,000, I think was the number she used, um, pub PubMed studies that you can find on alternative vaccine views. And by alternative, I just mean it's not what the pharmaceutical companies are publishing or pushing out to the media outlets that they own. I mean, again, like this isn't rocket science. This is so plain to see what is happening with vaccine mandates in this country and how how pharma just own they own the media. They own the media and they've got the sound bites that they repeat over and over, safe and effective, safe and effective. And meanwhile, this avalanche of children and adults are being hurt and being killed by vaccines. And what is so interesting with these mandates, so if you think like, oh, well, it's not me, I don't have kids, or I don't live in those states, this is coming to every state. This is coming nationwide, and it's coming for adults. Adult mandates are coming down the pipeline. Okay, so this does affect you. And even if you believe in vaccines or think you believe in vaccines, um, you want to be mandated Gardasil, you want to be mandated the flu shot every year, the two most dangerous vaccines. I mean, just think about it. Just just think about it. So if you want further resources, which if you've listened this far, I assume you do. Um, first of all, at my Instagram, instagram.com slash mythic medicine or just mythic medicine on Instagram, I have a ton of highlights. I mean, hundreds and hundreds, if not over a thousand, probably um, pages at this point of information, but there's so much, so much more out there. So this is a very, very limited list that I'm giving you right now. And it's all of course going to be in the show notes. Um, but I just really like distilled it down to the ones and I'm sure I forgot some, but that I feel like I get the most like bite size information from that I can just, you know, absorb with the few minutes I have to look at my phone at that moment. And the people who tend to be sharing actual science with 
actual links to the studies. So Facebook, Instagram, and then websites and one awesome podcast are what I'm going to give you here. Instagram accounts, PubMed underscore science underscore stats. PubMed science stats. Awesome, gigantic, like bodybuilder fighter guy named Joe who's so freaking smart and has so much good information out there. Uh, The Aulani Project. So this is a mother of a vaccine injured child who consistently shares, again, little like bite-sized pieces of information, but always with the PubMed ID number, always with resources. Um, She makes little video clips from various interviews and films, and it's so brilliantly presented. It's one of my favorites to follow. And then Believe Mothers. Believe Mothers. I mean, doesn't that name just say it all? I absolutely love what she's doing with that account. And Echo Unafraid. So Echo Unafraid, especially get into those stories. It's almost every single story she posts, I want to screenshot and repost. And same with Believe Mothers. I'm constantly reposting Believe Mothers. Um, I mean, there are literally dozens, if not hundreds more accounts that I follow on Instagram that are giving me vaccine information that I think is good. Um, Because there's some that I'm like, this is just overblown. This is like too much scare tactics. These are stupid, like hurtful memes. That's not the kind of stuff I'm into. I'm not going for everything that like presents the view that I have come to be aligned with after years and years and so many hours of research. Um, You know, I'm really discerning about the information I take in and the people I follow, which doesn't mean I agree with every single thing every single person I follow or recommend ever puts out into the world. So don't come at me if you're like, I don't like what she said about that. Like, I don't care. That's not me. Um, Facebook pages, The High Wire with Del Bigtree. If you are not already watching The High Wire, you are in for such a treat. There are over 100 episodes you can catch up on beautifully produced show Um, If you're not on Facebook, you can find it on YouTube or on their website. Amazing interviews with doctors and scientists, breaking down what's going on politically and scientifically with the vaccine conversation that is or is not happening in our country right now. The High Wire is absolutely necessary viewing and content for you to take in if you are interested in expanding your knowledge on this topic. Hear this well, hear this well. I just love everything they put out on Facebook. Um, And it's almost every day and it's always super relevant and well-resourced. Awesome, awesome people to follow. Vaccine impact, same thing. They're just, um, you know, synthesizing studies, synthesizing what's happening in politics and in society and like reporting it to you in such a great way. And then Ashley Everly, upcoming podcast guest, the creator of Vaccine Guide, which you can find at vaccine.guide. So that's her personal page, but she shares there more often than she does on the Vaccine Guide's Facebook page. So find her. I can't believe how much work she puts into every post she does. All of those people, actually. And then websites, the Informed Consent Action Network, or ICANN, uh, Children's Health Defense by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the Immunity Education Group, and the National Vaccine Information Center. Again, all of the links are in the show notes. Don't stress about remembering this. I'm just dropping these little audio bombs in your ear. And then finally, the podcast that you should be listening to is the Vaccine Conversation Podcast. There's over 50 episodes. 
They are so informative, so rational, just critical thinkers is all they are. Um, and a medical doctor, of course. Uh, I've just learned so much. It's, it's kind of like wishing I could screenshot every story that person does. I wish I could share like every single sentence that they speak on this podcast because it has been so enlightening for me to learn from them in, in that format. You know, it's hard to read all this information. It gets super overwhelming and your eyes get tired looking at your phone or computer all the time. So I'm so grateful that someone out there is doing a vaccine related vaccine related podcast that I can listen to when I'm driving or packaging orders or whatever. Um, so to finish a previous thought, what is going to happen as these mandates roll out? I mean, they're shooting themselves in the foot, right? Because right now with the censoring of the vaccine injury hashtag, which is just, you know, a symptom of the larger witch hunt atmosphere, gaslighting of parents and people who have seen vaccine injury or been injured themselves. Um, that, you know, that hashtag is just, is just like a, uh, the surface level of how we are not allowed to have this conversation in this society. Um, but as these mandates roll out, which right now pharma thinks is a big win, um, because they're going to make so much more money as that CDC schedule, which has already exploded in the last 30 years um, since pharma was granted liability from lawsuits in 1986. And immediately the schedule of how many shots everyone is supposed to get tripled and is just getting bigger all the time um, as that schedule increases even more than it already has, which is, as you heard Kelly say, 72 shots as of right now for children before they turn 18 and most of them in their young, young childhood. Um, what is going to happen is that more and more people are going to be injured and killed by vaccines. And so this conversation is not going away anytime soon. The censorship is not going to make it go away and the mandates are not going to make it go away. In fact, both of those things are giving more life and more power to this movement, to the movement of people who want rational vaccine conversation in the national public sphere, who want real science done on these vaccines and real science shared with the public, uh, Ashley and I are going to get into the, the pharma funded science when she is on the show. Uh, we want to be able to have these conversations and we want a real look at vaccine safety. Um, so that is not going away anytime soon and is, is in fact only going to get bigger as more people are hurt or injured by vaccines as the mandates roll out. So again, pharma is just shooting itself in the foot with these mandates. They're making it worse in the long run. It feels like a win right now, but very soon, the number of people who right now are like, vaccines save lives, they're safe and effective, are very soon going to be like, oh shit, what just happened to me? What just happened to my child? Because pretty soon almost just so many people that they know or themselves are going to be affected by these unsafe vaccines that we are currently using in the U.S. 
Okay, I have so much more to say, but I need to limit the time of this podcast. And like I said, I am no longer afraid to talk about this topic. I'm not going to stop talking about it on this show. It's not at all going to be the main focus of the show. In fact, I think you'll love the next episode all about poisonous plants. But um, (sighs) there's so much to say. Again, this is a conversation we need to be having. This is a conversation we need to be having. Um, So I'm going to keep having it. Thank you for listening. And I hope you have a nice relaxing day after taking all this fun information in. Okay, though, real quick, I didn't feel right just um, not having proof for that 225,000 articles on PubMed thing. So I went back to my source for it, which I'm not going to share because it's really unclear in the paragraph what exactly the 225,000 articles are about. It's definitely vaccine-related. It might be vaccines in general. Um, I'm really not sure, but it did say 225,000 PubMed articles on the subject. So, all right. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find past episodes, my blog, and our handmade herbal medicines at mythicmedicine.love. We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, mugwort, yarrow, redwood, body oils, an amazing sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, so much more, more than I can list there, mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, check out my quiz, which healing herb is your spirit medicine? It's fun and lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicine stories. It is so worth your while. There are dozens and dozens of killer rewards there, and I've been told by many folks that it's the best Patreon out there. We've got ebooks, downloadable PDFs, bonus interviews, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning and behind the scenes stuff, and just so much more. The best of it is available at the $2 a month level. Thank you. And please subscribe on whichever app you use. Just click that little subscribe button and review on iTunes. It's so helpful. And if you do that, you just may be featured in a listener spotlight in the future. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue. That's M-A-R-I-E-E-S-I-O-U-X from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. Thank you, Marie. And thanks to you all. I look forward to next time.